Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 18, which is our passage we are in in the Gospel of John, moving toward the Passion experience, definitely in Passion Week. And I really want us just to look at two verses today that we looked at last week in, uh, in the context of what we were talking about. But I want us to go back again to verses 37 and 38, Jesus' statement and then Pilate's response. Uh, Jesus speaking to him as he is questioning Jesus in a mockery of a Roman trial, uh, getting ready to, to turn him over to the people, but yet knowing and, and stating, I find no fault in him, I find no sin in him, I find no reason for him to be here. In verse 37, therefore Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king. And he answers, or answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now last Sunday we took time to kind of differentiate between uh, absolute truth and relativism. The idea that there are certain things that are true for all time, in all places, for everyone, and, and a contemporary view or a popular view today that, well, everything is just kind of relative. There are no absolute truths. There, are no, uh, there is no correspondence truth that, that statements don't necessarily always correspond to that which is completely true, that there's just a lot of different ideas floating around. And, and I hope you saw, as we talked about that, that Jesus' view is that there is absolute truth. The church's view for centuries since the beginning of the church has believed that there was absolute truth and that there is no understanding in place in Scripture that gives way to saying, well, some things are true for you and some things are true for other people and everybody's truth is true. It's just not acceptable. Uh, you can't say that Jesus is Lord, and in, in Pilate's case, say that Caesar is Lord. They both can't be Lord, not absolutely, not completely. And so one or the other is true, and, and the other, that leaves as being false. J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, and if, if you've never read that book, I encourage you to make that the one book in 2014 that you read. I've read it about 20 times probably over the last 25 or 30 years. It's, it's a tremendous book just on the nature and the character of God and knowing God as people, understanding when Jesus said earlier in this book uh, of John, when we looked at John 17, he said, this is, this is eternal life that you may know him, know God in an intimate way. And Packer's built that entire book around it. But in that book, he makes a statement in application. He says that people who know their God have a great energy for God, they have, a great, they have great thoughts of God, they show great boldness for God, and they have great contentment in God. Now he unpacks that in a long and, and a clear explanation, but I just want to hit you the bullet points today and understand that that is true. Those who know God through Jesus Christ have an intimate relationship with Him, have great energy with God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and a great contentment found in Him through Jesus Christ. These things are true for one reason and one reason only, and that is because God is great. 
He's a great and a mighty God. We've sung about that today. We've sung about His glory and His mightiness, His being glorious and mighty. We've sung about Him being the Lord of every man, the Lord of all creation. We've sung about those great truths, and we need to understand that those truths are efficient and those truths are factual for you and me today. But when Jesus makes this statement, I have come into the world for one reason and one reason only, and that is to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, what in the world is he talking about? Well, we could probably spend the next six years just talking about the truth that Jesus came to point to, the truth that he was about to go to Calvary that we sung about this morning, as a sacrifice, as a, as, as a substitute for his people on the cross. That's a great truth that he came to testify to. He came to testify to the reality of God and the reality of God's creation and the reality of all that he is. He came to testify that he was the Savior. And on and on and on we could talk about that. But I want us to think specifically this morning about the truth that he testified to about God the Father. The truth that he testified to about God the Father. Now, all through the Gospel of John and the other Gospels for that matter, Jesus refers to the Father, he points to the Father, he talks about the Father's power and the Father's grace and the Father's glory, and he's testifying to things that the Old Testament prophets had testified to for generation after generation after generation. I want to go to one specific passage that I think Jesus probably had in mind as he talked about this idea of truth about God, and that's over the the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah and chapter 40. Turn there with me, because I want you to see this as being an expression of the truth that Jesus came to testify to about God. Now, I already had uh, Scott Reed, Pastor Scott Reed this morning in our pastoral uh, scriptural reading uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. We'll refer to that in a moment about his character as being a holy God, holy, holy, holy. But in in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah just kind of comes comes to grips, if you will, with the glory of God, the glory of God the Father in a concise way and in a a compact way. You you can read the entire chapter, you can read the entire book particularly. We'll refer to some other places in Isaiah in a moment. But I want to look specifically... And Isaiah 21 through 31. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. 
the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not grow weary. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the passage there in, in Isaiah that, that, that talks about the truth of God is, is written there with one specific idea in mind, I think. And that is that when we know God and see Him as He is, as He is revealed in His Word, as truth makes Him to be known, when we understand who He is, knowing our great God produces a genuine sense of awe. I like it in verse 21 when he says, Have you not heard? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? He's talking about the absolutely standing in awe of a God who is mighty and great and beyond our comprehension. I've talked with some of you this morning who have been on trips, and you've talked about the absolute beauty that you've seen on some of your vacation trips. You've traveled around the country and you've seen great beauty. Some of you have been to Europe this summer and, and you've seen beautiful things, both man-made and created things. And, and all of those things cause you just to kind of stand there and go, wow. And, and they kind of make you stand there and say, oh, this is, this is amazing. This is really something to see. And, and many of you talked about over the last few nights about the the blood moon that was seen, the, the, the redness of the moon and the beauty and the, the absolute awe-inspiring character of it as it appeared on the horizon in a full moon type of situation. And, and some of you have peered through telescopes and looked off into space and you've seen stars after stars and galaxies and some with, with scientific abilities go and look through other telescopes that show us galaxies that are beyond our imagination, beyond what we can see anywhere near with our, with our eyes. And, and every one of those things makes us just kind of stand there and say, wow, what is that but awesome and powerful and, and awe-inspiring. But I want you to understand that what, what Isaiah is saying here about the truth of God, that all of those may be great and all those may be beautiful and all those may be magnificent, but none of them even begin to compare with the majesty and the awesomeness of God. That's why... Some of y'all get tickled at me, some of you get irritated with me, and some of you just think I'm totally off my rocker when you talk about something being awesome, like a car or a hamburger or, a, or a, a whatever, and I, and I will say, no, it's really not. Only God is awesome. It may be good, it may be great, it may be nice, it may be enjoyable, but, but uh, there is nothing awesome 
except our God. And Isaiah's want us to see here that our God is awesome. And he asks that question, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you what an awesome God we serve? Why would he ask that question three times? I think possibly it's because the answer to that is that we actually do live our lives many times being awe-inspired by things that are so much less than him, being caught up in, in things and places and people that are, are so much less than God, and we really don't live our lives as though we've heard about, known about, and actually know the awesome God who lives and who exists. We act as though he is just another thought. Isaiah here is wanting us to see the immensity of God, that our God is an immense God. He's greater than anything we've ever seen. Back in, in verse 12 of the same chapter, chapter 40, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Isaiah said, our God is so immense that, that everything that we see that we think is great, while he measures and counts and looks at and, and balances out, it, it matters. It's simple. It's nothing to him. He is so immense and so beyond everything we can imagine. I remember reading several years ago, matter of fact, it was back in 1991 in a journal called First Things that I, I periodically read, John, Richard John Newhouse wrote an article where he dealt with the idea. It was out of a, an article. He was referring to an article out of the New Yorker Review of Books about Albert Einstein and his view of organized religion. And Newhouse made some interesting uh, remarks. He, he wrote this. He said, and he's talking about another article. So he says, discussing a number of books on cosmology in the New York Book of Reviews, uh, Daniel Kelves quotes a specialist in general relativity theory. Some of you know what that means. I have no idea. I know what the rest of it is, though. And this is what, this is what Kelv said. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole idea of religion. It is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Albert Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. I love this. He must have looked at what preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were, not just, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions had run across, that the religions he had run across just did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. End quote. Newhouse went on to say, You might want to pass this on to your preacher. Or if you're a preacher, you might want to give it some thought and even give some thought to repenting, as might we all. The God we serve is an immense God. He's a God that when you think about Him and think upon Him, it ought to cause us to stand in such awe that we cry out with a, with a mighty voice, Lord, You are an awesome God. Awesome is our God and worthy and mighty to be praised. It ought to give us security, and that's what 
Isaiah is going to talk about in a minute, but I remember reading in A.W. Tozier's book on the attributes of God some years ago, he said, you know, it's, hard, it's awfully hard to get a, a true Christian scared. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's awfully hard to get a true Christian scared. It's hard to get him panicked if he really believes in God. Now, if he's just a church member, you can get him very panicked. But if he really believes in God, really believes God is who he says he is, then it's very hard to get him panicked. He went on to say, we are not a happy people because we've got our minds set on other things. We multiply, we increase, and still we're anxious and unsatisfied. Why? Because all that is beneath God and will not satisfy us. We only find our satisfaction in God. Augustine, the, the great church father, said, you know, we are, we are wandering and searching and we will not find our peace until we find it in God, an immense God, a glorious God, a God that is beyond really anything we can imagine, but a God who has revealed himself in his scripture. So he's immense. Isaiah also talks about him being a creator. He's a great God, and, and all the vast universe came into being at his command. You can go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he separated the waters from the earth, and, and all the things that you find there in Genesis 1. But, but in, Gen, in Isaiah, verse 26 here, in chapter 40, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. It's not a star missing that should be there. Lift up your eyes and see that. In 42, in verse 5, he says, Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread them out, the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Or in Isaiah 48, 13, My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. From the great and immense God and the vastness of the bigness of our God, the most minute details of creation came into existence. He is an immense God. He is the creator God. And he is a unique God. He is a unique God. If you look over in chapter 45, verses 5 and 6, and, and also verse 21 in that chapter, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and, and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He's unique. Who shall we compare to him, the scripture writers say? Who shall we imagine him to be like? There is none like him because he is an absolutely, totally, and unique God. He alone, none like him, no other. There is no God besides me. I remember reading one of my favorite uh, 
little children's series, and many of you have read it to your children by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Chronicles of Narnia, in one particular book, you find Jill, one of the characters, one of the children characters, becoming very thirsty. And, and on her way to, to wherever she's going, she sees this beautiful babbling brook, and she's very, very thirsty. And she starts running toward the brook, but as she gets close to the stream, she stops and she sees there's a lion laying there. If you remember in Chronicles of Narnia, the Christ figure is Aslan, the, the lion. And she sees Aslan there, doesn't know who he is, just knows that he's a lion. And as she draws just a little closer, she sees him. And the lion says, are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. The lion says to her, then drink. She says, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answers this only with a look and a low growl. You can imagine it. Look and a low growl. And Jill gazed at his motionless bulk. She realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the string was driving her nearly frantic. So she tried another approach. Will you... Will you, uh, will you promise not to uh, uh, do anything to me if I come? The lion said, I make no promise. Hmm. Jill was so thirsty that without noticing it, she had taken a step closer. And she said, do you eat little girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys and women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if it, as if it were boasting or, or even that if, as it were sorry, nor even if it was angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming one step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. The lion said, there is no other stream. Our God is a unique God. Our God is a God who is unlike anything or anyone else. And our God is the only God who gives thirst, who gives water to the thirsty. He is immense. He is creator. He is unique. And, and Isaiah says in verse 28 of this chapter that he is eternal. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth is everlasting. He does not become weary or tired and his understanding is inscrutable. From everlasting to everlasting, without beginning, without end, our God simply is. If you want a new theological term this morning, you can use the theological term, the aseity of God. The aseity of God, A-S-I-E-T-Y. The aseity of God just means the isness of God. 
He's not a God who was because he came into existence. He's not a God who is for now, but one day will not be. He is the aseity God. He is the God who just is because he has always been. He is eternal. He is everlasting. There's never been a time when God was not and never a time when he will not be. Before time and everlasting, God is. And we can find great hope in that. You can find great strength in that. You can find great energy in knowing that. That the God we submit to, the God we love, is a mighty God. He's an eternal God. He is also gloriously holy. Scott read from Isaiah 6 earlier. When the seraphim called to one another around the throne of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of earth. The earth, the whole earth is a Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled and full of His glory. Everywhere is glory. The glory of His holiness is everywhere. He is a holy, holy, holy God. And that's a glorious thing to see, folks. He's not like us. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't sin. He doesn't forget. He is a God who is gloriously holy. We cannot speak of His greatness without recognizing that. We cannot speak of the truth of God without recognizing His holiness. He is a God of love, but His love is a holy love. He is a God of justice, but His justice is a holy justice. He is a God of compassion, but His compassion is a holy compassion. Always caring and always in splendor and radiance. Isaiah said, I've, I've seen the Lord, I'm, I'm undone. I've seen the Lord, I'm going to die. You know, when he said that, he, he fully expected as he saw the Lord high and lifted up there on the, on, on the throne in the temple after King Uzziah died, he, he honestly thought that he was going to just disintegrate right there in the presence of, of the temple. He, he thought, I've seen God, I, I'm undone, I'm, I'm ruined, is another way of looking at that word, undone. I am going to just vanish. I've seen the Lord, and I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, sin is a part of our life, and, and He is without sin. He is perfect. He is holy. And to see Him, to look upon Him, even in a vision like Isaiah did, He said, I will, I will just die right here and vanish. But in His confession and in His repentance, the Lord was gracious angel, seraphim, went to the altar and took a burning coal and flew over and touched his lips with it and said, your lips are clean. Your iniquity is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven because you have confessed and because God has had mercy on you and you are now clean. What a glorious truth. That we who have no right to enter into the presence of God, in the presence of a holy God, who have no authority to do that, have no, no purity to do that, are cleansed by His gracious grace as we come before Him. So when Jesus talks about, I came to testify to the truth, He came to testify to the truth of who God is and what God is like. He came to testify to the truth that I am God incarnate. I have come to live among you, John said in chapter 1. And he came and tabernacled among us to show us the fullness of grace and truth. That's why he came. 
but it also has an effect. And Isaiah talks about that effect. When we see God, and as, as Packer said in, in his book, Knowing God, when, when we know our God, it affects us. It gives us great energy for God. It gives us all these things that he mentions. We, we have a great energy for God. We have a great passion for God. And Isaiah says what it does, it renews us. When we see him in all his glory, when we gaze upon him, when we come and say, yes, we have heard and we have seen and we do know and it has been declared to us who this God is and we know him through his son Jesus Christ. Isaiah says he renews us. Perhaps Isaiah has the th same thing in mind that Jesus did in John 15. When we looked at John 15 a, a month or so ago, and, and Jesus was talking to the disciples about the vine and the branches. I am the, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he made this little statement in, I think it was verse 5 or verse 8, I can't remember, one or the other. He said, he said you know, apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. And Isaiah says here, I want you to understand that, that we need his renewal. He gives us strength to the weary. He, he gives to him who lacks might. He increases power. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. We may try. We may come up with program and we may come up with process. And we may think, well, we can, we can muster up our own strength. But Jesus says you must understand you need my strength. And so Isaiah shows us here that our God is a God of power. He's a God of strength. He says he will give it to those who become weary. He will, he will care for those who lack might. He will increase their power. He renews our strength, he says in verses 29 through 31. He gives strength to the weary, to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Those who wait for the Lord, those who try not to get out in front of him, but those who seek his face and those who desire to know him, those who pursue him with all their heart, Says he, he, he gives them new strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Therefore, we go back to what Tozier said in his book on the attributes of God. He said, a Christian, really, you, you can't panic. You can't frighten. You can't scare. Why? Because they know their God. They may have great calamity. They may have great sickness. They may have financial downturn. But they know who ultimately is in control. They know the truth that our God reigns. They know the truth that our God is an awesome God. He's a creator and he's a sustainer and he's a redeemer and he's a savior. Our God is beyond anything we could imagine. And had not God in his word told us what he's like, we would never have figured it out. We would always have been left to our own devices. The 
thing that the scriptures want us to see so clearly, the thing that Jesus wants to understand about the truth that he came to give testimony to, simply this. No one, no thing, no possession is like our God. No thing, no person is worthy of becoming an idol before him in our life. No thing, no person, no idea can ever supplant the greatness of a great God. Because he's a great God, it, it ought to cause us to come before him with humility. It ought to really humble the haughty and even make the haughty tremble. It ought to give peace to those who are troubled and understanding to those who are confused and strength to the weak and Protect the vulnerable and comfort the hurting. That's what our God is all about. I guess the question that stands above all other questions this morning is simply this. Do you, do you know this great God? Do you know Him in such a way that through His Son, Jesus Christ, you you know Him, you understand Him because of His revelation. You're strengthened by Him. You're made alive through Him. Indeed, you have joy in Him. And you find your satisfaction in Him. I love what Piper says about God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Think about that a minute. God's glory shines through our lives more beautifully, more powerfully. He is glorified through us and in us when we are most satisfied in Him. What satisfies you? Money? Prestige? Popularity? Power? What satisfies you? Scripture indicates and makes very clear that we're to find our satisfaction in the one we were created to worship. The one who created us, the one who, who sustains us. We sang about that. His power sustains us, holds everything together. Find our satisfaction in Him. But boy, we forget who He is, don't we? We just sometimes flat forget who He is. And we let things eclipse Him like a, an eclipse of the sun. Block it out. Hide it. And we say, oh, He's not there. He doesn't care. He, because something has come between us and Him and we just can't see him. We forget him. So the prophet reminds us, as they did Israel, Judah, have you not heard? Do you not know? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Our God is a mighty, glorious Holy, creative, eminent, immense, 
glorious God. And in all of that, He cares for us. In all of that, He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world that dies. We've sung about so clearly this morning. I love the way Daniel states it. In Daniel 11.32, it says, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The, The ones who know their God will stand firm and take action. In other words, those who know their God will have great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment and satisfaction in God. Just like Packer said. God is at work. It changes our life. When God is at work, it gives us a whole different focus. And just like Jill, we come to the, we come to the stream thirsty. We come to the stream and we look and we say, well, maybe we can find somewhere else satisfaction. Maybe we can find our thirst satisfied at another stream. And God cries out, there is no other stream. Jesus cries out, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. There is no one that finds satisfaction for their thirst. There's no one who finds satisfaction for their spiritual hunger. Anywhere else. As Blaise Pascal said centuries ago, one of the first apologists for the Christian faith, He says, within every human being, there's a God-shaped vacuum that only finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We may try to fill it with drugs. We may try to fill it with sex. We may try to fill it with relationships. We may try to fill it with all sorts of other religions. We may try to fill it with just being our own person. We may try to fill it with saying, we're powerful, we're great, we can do what we want to do. But it never completely satisfies. Until, as Augustine says, we find our place, we find our rest in Him. There is no other stream, there is no other source, there is no other God. Have you not heard? Have you not been told? Do you not know? Let's pray. And Father, we are grateful to you for your revelation of yourself that gives us strength That when we become weary, gives us rest and renewal. And Lord, that gives us hope in Christ. Our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. Father, I pray this morning that you will give us a glimpse of your truth. When Pilate said, what is truth? He needed to hear Jesus say, 
I've come to testify the truth. And everything I've done up to this point, everything I've said, every miracle I've performed, every sign I've done has been to show the truth of Almighty God. Help us, Lord, on this Father's Day to see our Father as glorious and mighty. Help us on this day, O Lord, this Father's Day, to see that we can have a relationship with a Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can know Him. And we can know the power of your resurrection. We know, Lord, that you are alive even today. Thank you, Father. Lord, as we sing together about your wondrous cross, remind us, O Lord, of that sacrifice, that substitution that took place there. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.